Welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. You may be surprised that our show is airing live today, knowing that our usual time is the, as the fourth Wednesday of every month. But Thanksgiving's next week, so we wanted to give you an opportunity to hear us live today. We'll still replay the show at our usual time next week on November 26th. The show is presented to you today by Gasowitz Frankel a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, tips, follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag, if I could tell you what that actually is, is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gasowitz and Craig Frankel, and we're talking about why you should include plan giving in your estate planning. As always, we want to share an update with you on the charitable giving program and the celebration of our 25th anniversary year. As we've talked before, we are giving $500 twice a month to a variety of charities. And if you want to learn more about it and to learn about how $500 can help change a local charity, you can go to our youtube.com slash estate dispute to watch the videos and subscribe for news and updates. And Adam? Let me introduce our guest today. Uh, we have with us uh, Alicia Phillip, who's president of the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, and Phyllis Silverstein, senior trust officer and fiduciary specialist, and I guess vice president at uh, uh, Philanthropic Services at Wells Fargo Private Bank. And I, uh, if I could have you each just uh, explain to the audience uh, a little bit about yourselves before we get started, I'd appreciate it. Well, I'm Alicia Phillip with the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, and the Community Foundation is a local nonprofit organization governed by a board of directors, and the purpose of the foundation, we have four things that we do extraordinarily well, I think. One is engaging donors. We have 700 donors who have funds with the foundation. We work with them on their philanthropy. We're about strengthening the nonprofits in the metropolitan Atlanta area. We help advance public will, and we try to practice organizational excellence. That's us in a nutshell. Okay. I'm Phyllis Silverstein with Wells Fargo, and what we do at Wells Fargo Private Bank and Philanthropic Services is actually help individuals, corporations, and charities make the most of their philanthropic dollars and make a tremendous impact for their families, their philanthropy, and their community. And Wells Fargo, they've been doing this for over 40 years and uh, have just been named as the number one most generous cash donor for corporate philanthropy as per Chronicle of Philanthropy in 2012 and 2013. Y'all have your elevator speeches down <laughs> pat. That's good. All right, well, since our topic today is planned giving, why don't we just start with what is planned giving? Well, to me, planned giving is just the thoughtful giving of gifts um, during your life or by bequest or some other instrument at your death. And, and I think that more and more people are very taking the time to really think about how, what they want to give, how they want to engage their families, and how they really want to make an impact and a difference in the community. And we're seeing that, and it, it's interesting because we see the difference in generations, we see the difference in types of people, and we can get into more of that, but it's fascinating to me to watch people as they really think about structuring and planning their gifts. I, I tend to see people who um, haven't really thought about giving as a planful model for their entire estate plan. And so what we tend to do more often is actually look at their entire estate plan and then talk about how philanthropy can be a big piece of it and how that can include their family as well. So just two different sides of the same coin. You, you talked about different generations, so we're going to jump ahead because that's what we do here. And is there a difference between what I would consider my parents' generation in giving and the generation of me and my children? 
I definitely think so. Um, I've been at the Community Foundation for 37 years. The Community Foundation is 63 years old, so it's... And you started when you were 10. Exactly. So it's been through... There, Both of us, the Community Foundation and myself, have seen Atlanta philanthropy through a number of generations. But watching the World War II generation, who was very much about it's the right thing to do, to give back to the community. And then this next sort of smaller, silent generation that now is in their 70s and some of them in their 80s, it's legacy and it is about giving back. Um, As we watch the transfer of wealth to the next generation, to the boomers, it's it's much more about getting engaged and being... um, sharing their talent as well as their treasure. So it's kind of a different, it's a different mode, and it's going to be different for nonprofit organizations and others about how they engage these donors and how they really en- a- attach them to their organizations for them to be able to give. And the generational difference is not just between us, the, the boomers, and, uh, and our parents. It's also between us and the next generations behind yeah. us, right? Right. It is. Of course, in planned giving, you're not seeing as large a number of those of people in the generation behind us giving large gifts at this point yet. So there's it's kind of hard, difficult to tell. But we do know that there will be a lot more that they will learn on social media and other places about how to give. Is the giving is the giving we, less? Uh, and, and our generation, the boomer generation and below. I say ours. No one knows how old I am. I'm 18. Um, is there less in this generation? Well, I, I find that. There may be more disposable income for them to give. It's a matter of have they been taught at the kitchen table about how to use their resources to better the better their world and their community. And I think as we talk about the older generation, it's important to bring in that next generation two and three and sometimes even four to the table where we can have one big comprehensive conversation about family and philanthropy and impact. You say, you say it's important that we do that. And let me kind of take a step back. I can see why it's important from the charities and the nonprofits that we care about because they can't survive without the philanthropy. Why is it important to the next generation? Well, I think it's important to the, to the next generation because this way they'll know before the funeral what was important to the patriarch, matriarch, what, what's important to their family legacy, what they really stand for. And for the most part, they don't find out about that until it's now their turn. And then it's up to the professional advisors and community leaders to try and explain to them, well, this is what your family really thought about. But it's so much better for us to have done that ourselves as families. And, and, than- and, and by what's important to them, are you talking about the specific kinds of charities or philanthropic uh, uh, vehicles? Or well, are you talking about just the idea of giving. Well, what I'm really talking about is the values, Mm because I think at its core, it's about what values you share between generations. Where do you place your value about family? Where do you place your value about faith? Where do you place your value about um, helping others to to be self-sufficient? It's really looking at a whole series of values. And at the Community Foundation, we work with donors and go through these values exercises with their families to help them really begin to understand what the core values the whole family shares. And the giving platform and their strategic plan around giving can be built from those values. Well, those values values, Well, no, values actually don't change. I mean, values... I've, I've done the values exercise numerous times, and what you really believe is kind of at the core of who you are, and it really can knit a family together, and I think it can be a wonderful exercise in family um, cohesion to be able to go through a values exercise. Even if the values between the generations and also between genders are not going to be the same, it's it's an honest, open kind of conversation 
which gets everybody's issues out on the table. And, and I think that's a very positive conversation. I also think it's, and the charities are not going to be happy right now, but it's not so much about the specific charities, but about maybe what those charities and the services they're providing are all about. We had a couple come in one time, and the conversation was about going through their values and, and talking about gifts they had made. And the question was, what's the most significant gift they had ever made? And they looked at each other and they said, you know, it wasn't the million and a half dollars to our university. It actually was my wife's clothes to dress for success. And really what it unlocked in them was that they cared about helping people to become self-sufficient. And it didn't mean they gave any less to their university or anywhere else. It meant that they found a way to really make a difference in this community. How do parents start that with their children? I mean, my, my joke in the car when I'm doing carpool, and I have teenage kids now, is that every child is on their electronic device communicating by, if I say texting, my children will laugh and say I'm an old man, but by some vehicle and there's no talking. Um, how do we talk to our children and, and, and get these values and start them on the path to giving? Well, I think uh, there's a couple of ways. Um, there are many different sort of programs that kids can become part of. At the Community Foundation for Donors, Children and Grandchildren, we have a program called Planet Philanthropy, where they spend a day really learning about philanthropy and being at a nonprofit organization and actually making a gift jointly with the other kids that are part of the program and a gift on their own. But it really it takes them away from their electronic devices and immerses them in a nonprofit organization and in giving. But parents need to just make it part of the warp and woof of their life. Um, they need to take kids to nonprofits when they're going to volunteer. They need to do things that really engage the kids. And they need to listen to what the kids are interested in. And did, we know that kids are interested in animals. Take them to animals. Right. It's, you, all, it's all about role modeling and not being afraid to talk about how much they give and, and the impact that they well, think I, it I makes. I was just going to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that, that our generation and above don't really talk about the giving. Even, even the ones who give don't really discuss it. Uh, either it's a personal thing or it's not something you really you know, sort of get vocal about. Well, and, 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 you know, there's a debate. Do you have to talk about the amounts you give? I'm not, you know, I think that's a very personal thing. And people don't need to necessarily, how much they reveal to their kids at what age is what's really important. Small children don't need to know the amounts. What they need to know is that giving is important to this family. It's a root value of our family. And, and let's have you begin to be a giver, too, and let's you begin to be a volunteer, because I believe you've got to give time, talent, and treasure. It's not just about giving money. Right, but, but I think, I think when, when parents go to these major galas and they're going to meetings that all the kids see happens to be, oh, well, mom, mommy's going to another meeting or daddy's going to another dinner and they're not home – and then children become resentful, and they don't grow up to follow in those footsteps because those footsteps didn't seem positive to that particular family. So it, we got to change that conversation a little bit. So you're suggesting really something that I find very attractive, and I hope we're trying it in our own family, is volunteering and actually being at the charities you care about, but letting the family know while you're there that you're also giving. Is, right. that, is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. How do you do that? That's awfully hard for a young family, particularly those that don't have time or a significant amount of money? I think it's one of those things you need to make time for. Um, I think there are many wonderful ways to volunteer together. I mean, packing food at the food bank. I mean, planting trees for Trees Atlanta. There's a million 
interesting, fun things that kids can really get engaged in. And the thing to be able to say is, you know, we've helped this organization with our time, but we've also made a gift to them so that they're able to get this food out to the people who need it. We packed it, but let, they need to get it out there. There, well, there are also all these angel trees in the particular different elementary schools and middle schools and high schools that if a family goes into the office and takes an angel tree off the off the tree and then takes their child shopping with them, they don't have to go out of their way. It's not out of their normal routine. And here they are imparting philanthropy in a very small local down the street level. So what, what, well, what about the, there are a lot of people out there who, who would like to do more of that, but who, who are thinking to themselves, I work hard, I, I make a lot of money, and my time is better spent in making money so that I can give away more money than it is spending an entire day down at the food bank or at a soup kitchen. Uh, there's a significant amount of the population that is like that. And I, I don't think they should feel guilty about not mm -hmm. going and working. Mm -hmm. I think we just need to bring them into the fold of being more giving. How do you do that? Well, I think that's also part of where, where both of us come into the picture, where we work behind the scenes with the, the families who are making a lot of money but don't have the time and maybe create some kind of uh, journey down that down that path and, and what that, you know, map it out. What does that really look like for the family and for all the various generations? And that's if there are multiple generations and if they happen to be local. So what you just said really, really well is you need a plan. Exactly. So let's bring us back to planned giving. And, and I want to start with planned giving doesn't mean you have to have a lot of money necessarily. It's the start. Correct. So you may start and say, I've got whatever that number is, $500 or $1,000 or $20 that I can give this year. How do I do it and, and grow that? How can we, both as a community and as parents, start this planning? Or as advisors. Or as advisors, yes. Well, the most important thing, I think, is to have the conversation, is to begin and to talk to, if you're, particularly if you're thinking about doing this as a family or whether you're doing it yourself, what matters to me? How do I, how do I, where do I want my name to be? Where do I want my time and energy and my money to be? Where do I think I can make a difference in this community? And really put it there. Don't just put it where Joe tells you to put it that, that happens to be your best friend or whoever comes to your door. Just take a minute to be thoughtful about what matters to you. Well, see, now now I'm on the other side. So after 28 years in nonprofit, now I'm on the advisor side, and I, I do see things a little differently on, on this side of, of the desk in that people think they're doing a good thing by giving where their neighbor tells them to give, and they want to feel happy about that. So as advisors, we want to help them do more of that and help have that kind of conversation where they feel good about it. But also as advisors, many, many advisors feel inadequate in having those kinds of conversations with their clients. It's like the sex talk with your kids. You know you should do it, but it's awfully hard to start. So let's start now. I've got a kid who's in college, and at some point, hopefully, he'll get a job. Um, how does he start? How do we help him start? Well, Hopefully, you started a lot earlier than the college age, um, because I know with my daughter, who I think is, is the same age as your as your son or close to it, it was going to the it was going to a lot of events and a lot of things as a small child that really developed her empathy, I think. And more than anything, it's really developing empathy in that next generation because empathy can then follow the dollars and the time. But people, I think young children have to really develop that skill about being empathetic. My, I have a son who just graduated college and now is actually working in the financial sector. 
and he was afraid to have this philanthropic conversation with me. He said, will you be upset if I don't want to give to an overall community organization? And I said, I would be more upset if you weren't giving to anything. Just give to something and be passionate about it. You're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Phyllis Silverstein and Alicia Phillip, and we're discussing why you should include planned giving in your estate plan. Um, how, do you, how do you start including that? How do you bring up that conversation with the, uh, well, particularly from the advisory community, how do you bring that conversation up with the clients that you're advising, but not necessarily advising about that subject? I mean, the, the conversation has to start somewhere, and it often doesn't start with the clients. I think one of the ways that advisors and others can bring it up with clients is is a conversation about what does your checkbook tell about you and and helping people to look at what they what have they been doing with their checkbook where has you know, probably nobody uses a checkbook anymore right but uh, where is their money going and but, but a lot of people think I'll give it's when a I have metaphor now <laughs> yes it's a metaphor <laughs> but a lot of but, people think I'll give when I have enough but I don't have enough yet or I'll well, give when I'm but, s- but actually people are giving if they look at their checkbook and they add it up they they are giving money and so it's begin to say okay is that what I want to do does that really represent me do I want to do more of that? Do I want to do less of that, but more of something else? But it's really beginning. I think sometimes you first have to start with where people are in what they're doing and build on that from there. See, I I have this unique position within within Wells Fargo where I have a whole array of financial advisors down the hall and in the building. and, And I actually go and speak with each one of them about how to talk to their clients about philanthropy. They know I'm down the hall but they don't think of philanthropy as something that's you know, one of the topics they should put in their top five list. It's about taxes and estates and, and planning and insurance and all those other pieces of an estate plan. And philanthropy is, well, maybe they're not really charitable, but if I can sit with them and help them understand how that's a good conversation to have with their client and makes the advisor look better, then everyone's happier. So does the planning generally start with a... Uh, uh uh, a charity that has a particular need and they're seeking donors who, who they can get interested in that need? Or is it start with individuals who have a passion about something or a problem they see in, the, in society they want to fix, but just don't know the best way to go about it? All of the above. Yeah, it really does. It's, it can be triggered by lots of different, different conversations. Um, but the most important thing is for it to be triggered and for it to begin and for it to happen. I, I think more and more charities, and just to get on my soapbox for a moment, more and more charities need to look at sustainability down the line, look at their tried and true donors, and have those kinds of conversations about what this organization will look like 20, 30, 50 years from now. And, and maybe that organization will look different because the needs will be different. But having that conversation today brings that donor into that long-term plan. Well, I, I went, and I'm going to ask you about some ideas. I spoke recently at a plan-giving council type of group, and my alma mater came up to me and asked me a very blunt question. She said, is this university in your will? And I thought about it, and the answer was absolutely not. No one's in my will. And she said, have you thought about just now, and this was several years back, adding a charity or two or three of your spouse's and your choice of 1% or 2%? If you end up having a lot of money, that will be a substantial gift, and you can change it over time. If you don't have a substantial amount of money, it's still not going to hurt as you try to provide for your family. I actually thought that was brilliant, and my wife and I did it. 
are there other things? And now it's in my horizon. It's in my horizon both for thinking about it and if I am excessively wealthy, which is a goal of my children, then I can give to charity and I can avoid some conflicts in the future because they know I'm doing it. What are some techniques that we can do that encourage the, the person who wants to give to start thinking about what I would call estate planning giving, where I think the larger dollars are capable for the charities, and it's hard for the charities themselves, particularly unsophisticated charities, to do this. How can we encourage that? I think it, it all depends, too, on people's asset size and everything. But one thing that we're seeing more and more is people being very clear about how much they want to leave to their children and being very clear that they don't want to leave too much to their children. And that is a very key conversation that advisors often have with their clients about that. And then once that is handled about what they want to leave to their children, often there's the potential for more that could be used for charity. In my own estate, I've set a certain amount for each child, and anything that's in my estate above and beyond that will go to the community foundation. But have you have you told your children that? Absolutely. Okay. Took the will, but- sat down, talked with them. And they, they said to me, they said, well, the community foundation is your third child anyway. But, I mean, so that, you know, they were they were pretty clear about <laughs> the, that. The, the problem we see in our practice is people don't talk about that with their and children. And so there's a surprise so at the end. I know. And there's always awkward. They were like, oh, you're never going to die. And I'm like, yes, of course I am. But, you know, you really need to have that conversation. But I think there's a lot of ways to approach it. It just depends on what, you know, sort of once again, that's where your advisor can really help you. How do you take the first step? I think, the, you know, it's, it's baby steps for virtually everything, you know, whether it's a homework project or charitable giving. How do you help that family take the first step? Well, sometimes, I mean, we try try to talk about the fact that a charitable gift, either in a lifetime or a state, is going to help with tax situations. And even though most donors are not giving because of taxes, most advisors are happy to have that kind of conversation because that's a conversation they feel comfortable having with their clients. So even if it starts about taxes, that's not a bad place to start. At least they're starting. I'm seeing now, even with very wealthy donors, but now that we have a very high amount before you start triggering an estate tax, I believe it's now going to be... 5,340,000. But but the percentage is 99.2, 99.3, I can't recall the number, will never have an estate or a gift tax. So the majority of Americans, the tax talk is going to be about income tax. And, and actually, just to be accurate, it's it's less than 0.2% of Americans will have an estate tax problem. So it's 99.8. I had it wrong. Yes. <laughs> you know, my, my husband and I, in our estate plan, actually, we, we, in our lifetime, took care of the charities we wanted to endow with current gifts so that we, we were able to already talk to our children. But this is what's important to us. It's also a, an, a today income tax deduction. And what happens, our estate is separate and apart from what we wanted to have as far as our impact on those charities. We also wanted the charities to know what we were doing so that... Why? So that they knew we were committed to them for the future and that we weren't just going to you know, throw money at them and walk away. As, as we see now, we call it an estate plan, but people think a tax plan. I'm looking at it and saying this is a plan for as we pass, but I see a lot of my clients and a lot of my friends saying... I want to give now, but I'm concerned I won't have enough for when I'm old or my spouse is old. And then by the time they get there, they forget, so to speak. How do we figure that balance out? We plan. We, we, <laughs> we, we bring the client to the table with all of their advisors, 
and have that kind of conversation that we can map out exactly what their financial situation will look like. And we're all partners in that and we're monitoring it all along the way. And and if there are charities that are connected to that conversation, we bring those charities into the conversation. There's also so many interesting ways that people who have you know, a little bit probably more than modest wealth can plan. I mean, there's things like charitable lead trust where the income from the gift can go to the charity during their lifetime and then the asset goes to their into their estate and to their children at their death. I mean, there's that's the thing is you've got to really know what's in what to, what are the assets a person has, both physical assets and and what do they care about. And then when all that's laid out on the table, your plan is going to be different than his plan, than her plan, but there needs to the important thing is there needs to be a plan that takes into account you and your values and your future. And I would venture to say that nobody really knows what's in any individual's plan until they're gone. Well, and, and, and then we, all and, these things get uncovered. And we're talking about the, the plan you're referring to is the plan that takes place at your death. What about the planning before that? What about giving during your lifetime as opposed to just waiting until you're dead? And, and let me dovetail that. To help planning, giving while you're alive is there like an app that you can go to that helps you that says, you know, here's how, you know, set aside your money. And I, I know that I get most of the solicitations in November, yet my wife and I may have already given, and, you know, November might be a hard month, tuition is due. Is there a way, is there a plan that we can start with and then be able to take the next baby step to a professional, or is that just wishful thinking that somebody needs to do? To me, it gets back to what we teach children to do as small children, which is to have the three boxes and to always, you know, we teach them to put the box for savings, the box for spending, and the box for charity. And in essence, we even as grown-ups need to be thinking in those three boxes. And you need to be putting aside money that you can begin to use for charity in that year or in subsequent years or however your particular lifestyle enables that. I think we also need to take in consideration that everybody's different. Of the four of us, we each give our charitable dollars in different ways. And so charities and professional advisors and donors all need to look at their base as being all different individuals. And and I guess one size doesn't fit all. Right, but charities need money now. I mean, they're certainly happy to get a gift when you die sometime in the unpredictably foreseeable future. But... They'd like money now. And what happens when the money they get now dries up tomorrow because that person's gone? It's a both and. I mean, it's a both and because you should be giving to the organizations and the causes that matter to you now. But you have to realize that when you pass, you would if that cause an organization still matters to you, hopefully you've left something in your will that will endow the kind of gift that you were giving on well, an uh, annual basis. Well, is, there, is there anybody talking about the benefits to individuals of giving now? The, Absolutely. Not, not, not just that the charity benefits, but that you benefit, your family benefits, your your whole um, uh, personality changes when you feel a part of giving while you're alive as opposed to knowing something's going to happen when, you, when you're dead. And then you're more likely to include it in, a, in an it's, estate plan. To me, it is just so amazing to watch, the, to watch donors on sort of a life cycle of giving. I mean, so we're in fourth generation with some of the donor families at the Community Foundation, but even to watch it within one generation. When people find how much fun it is to be charitable and how good it makes them feel and how they positively, they choose then to consume less and to give more. And it's amazing to watch. And the joy on their face and the joy in their heart it's, but they've got to take that first step. It's the first step that's the hardest. But once they do it, they love it. 
Yeah, my, my clients who are private foundations, I, I've seen them grow as the not the not the amount that they're giving grows, but as their connection to the various charitable interests grow. So and I've really seen Emphasizing connection them. for both. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a fun question, or at least what I think is a fun question. So each of you, from the private and kind of the public perspective, you said you got to get advisors engaged, and it's difficult. You got thirty seconds. Give me your spiel to an advisor to encourage them to expand their clients' giving. Give themselves. There is nothing like an advisor who is also an active donor to be able to bring up that conversation. So it really, I strongly encourage the advisors who have funds in the Community Foundation are the best advisors in terms of encouraging their clients to give to philanthropy. I, I agree with that. It does make a huge difference when you can tell your clients, this is what I do and this is what I get out of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's also um, a, a good conversation for advisors to have about why they give and f- to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's good for their business. It makes their clients see them in a different light that they're not just pencil pushing, worried about Excel spreadsheets and the stock market, but worried about them as human beings. You, you both, both of you in, at your very different organizations do a lot of work in – in helping donors figure out what to give to or, or what either what categories to give to if they're not even sure what they want to do or if they know they're interested in specific things, uh, how to vet those different uh, types of charities that will fulfill that mission. Is that right? Yes. Well, yes, we definitely do. And, and the Community Foundation is fortunate in that because we're a grant maker in the, in the 23-county area and have a staff that's out constantly out there really looking carefully at all the nonprofit organizations, we have a wealth of information about which nonprofits are strong, which aren't, which are blue chip, which are sort of penny stocks, I mean, you know, all sort of all the different ways of looking at nonprofits. And so when a donor is interested in child sex trafficking or some particular interest area, when we're you able to say interested in, you mean against it. No, yes, against <laughs> okay. it. You're right. Just but interested, to you're right, but interested in making a difference <laughs> in child sex trafficking. We can say here's the top three organizations that are really making a difference in that because we've done site visits, we've looked deeply at their financials. And that's a real asset to and, donors. And Phyllis, I know you do a lot of that work. It's just sort of on the grounds investigation of what charities are, are worthwhile, what uh, investments the foundations that you manage at Wells Fargo should be investing in, right? Well, I, I do a lot of site visits, but I think where it's most impactful is when I take the client with me on that site visit, because I, I may be able to say, this is what I personally feel, or this is what their you know their financial spreadsheet looks like. But when the client is actually sitting mm-hmm. there seeing children in a Absolutely. homeless shelter, yeah. actually seeing that, you know, boys are wearing women's underwear because they don't have enough boys underwear in a particular facility, they get really excited. And that's the transformation that we want to see in our clients. And it's really amazing when they take their kids with them. Um, when they go as a whole family to do the site visits, when they look at the three top ones and they say, okay, we want to do a site visit at this one, and they take their kids and the, and the family begins to experience it together. It's awesome. Yeah, when, uh, with our uh, firm's giving program, uh, um, we've encouraged the uh, uh, people at our firm who have picked the charity for that month to actually physically deliver oh, the yeah. checks to it, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Right. I also work with um, corporate foundations where when we meet with the charities, we ask the charities to come up with employee volunteer opportunities, which then allow the, the corporation to not only give a gift, but to have their employees connected, which makes for better communal citizens all around. So we're talking really, whether we're talking families or whether we're talking through donor-advised funds, or even your professional corporate funds, connectivity is the issue. 
To me, it, uh, it absolutely is. And it's connectivity is what makes it joyful. It's what brings the happiness to both sides. It's just the connection is so important. In this global society, we're so disconnected now. And with all those devices you were talking about, there's so much disconnection that philanthropic giving is something that can really reconnect you to your community and to each other. You told a story the other day when we were talking about a pool table that I love. So I'm going to ask you, solicited, tell that story. So it was fascinating. Well, we had a woman um, donor who wanted to give a pool table to her grandchildren. And she said, I will give you a pool table for the holidays if we also give a pool table to someone else. So they researched and they found a group home that really wanted a pool table. So she bought a pool table for them, and they went out to the delivery of the pool table. Her her grandchildren met all the kids at the group home. It was just a whole different – they looked at their own pool table very differently going forward in the future as a result of that. I love that story. That's great. (laughs) Okay, Phyllis, you get a chance. Tell us a feel-good story like that that you brought in connectivity. (gasps) Oh, you know, every day we're we're just, I mean, sometimes it just breaks my heart when I do a site visit and I see how much need there is in the community. And then I go back to my client and I'm just, just overwhelmed by how much need there is. And then they say, well, take me with you. And watching them grow and just watching so many wonderful things happen. It's just, I, I just, I have so many stories. I'm not sure I can actually pinpoint one. However, I have um, a client that's all, all female with one male, took them on a site visit, and the male in the group was so excited about a particular school for girls that he's been the champion for it. So watching him change and and be the advocate for women has really been that that's been cool for me. So so how, so how do you help families who have no particular charity in mind or no particular need in mind? They just know that they have resources. They'd like to use those resources to to help bring change to their community, but don't have any idea where to begin or even what to begin focusing on. But that's where I think that the values exercise is mm-hmm. important because I think really if you come to a value that's about helping people to build, you know. You know, we came up by our bootstraps. When you listen to the family story and you ask them about previous generations and you really look at how did they get here, how did their parents get here, there often are themes in families that are really about who we are as a family. And if you can tap in sometimes to those stories about who they are as a family, you really can then begin to say, well, would you like to see some organizations maybe that address that? Take them out, have them visit those, and really see if that resonates with them. But listening to those family themes is important. We're talking uh, about the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth here on Wealth Matters. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. And we're talking to Phyllis Silverstein and Alicia Phillip. Let's let's follow up on that. You have now, both of you have used this phrase that I think we in this room, studio, are familiar with, which is the values exercise. Tell us what the values exercise is. So I, I recently did this with a client where I used the value, the card that were pictures, and they were just pictures of, of 25 different themes, of an old book, of an older person holding a younger person's hand, of a rainbow, of marathon runners, of big buildings, of art, just a myriad of different pictures, and worked with the foundation the donor, the benefactor, and his advisors, his attorney, his accountant, and did the whole exercise with them. And it started with, okay, you have to give money away. You have 5% required minimum distribution. Where do you want to give the money to? I'm happy to just you know write the checks for you, but let's talk about it. And in going through the pictures, 
he actually started with, I, I don't really know what I'm interested in, to, well, these three pictures really speak to me. And then we talked about why those three pictures spoke to him and turned it into, now he, he really looks at himself as a philanthropist. And you could be a philanthropist with small dollars. Mm-hmm. And I point that out because a client of mine recently encouraged me, and I hope our family's doing it, every time the, the parents gave to a charity a substantial amount, they asked the children, if it was a charity they shared, like a school, to give a small amount. Mm-hmm. And the amounts could be really darn small. It's okay. Um, how do we do that? How do we talk to our kids about that? I, I want to go back to what something Alicia said where, where she specified that a, a planned gift is a gift that, re, that has planning in it. That it's been thoughtful. I think anybody can be charitable, but a philanthropist is not the amount. It's the thought behind the gift that makes you a philanthropist. Uh, Phyllis, you said you used to be in the uh, in the nonprofit world. I think you spent most of your career there. What's the difference between the nonprofit world and the for-profit world, and the way you do your job? Well, I think there are lots of differences and, and lots of similarities. And I'm blessed that I get to have that experience of having worked in the nonprofit world and now bring that into the what we call the for-profit world, and then be able to continue to do the philanthropic consulting and, and work with our clients. And I think I, I bring that unique experience. Um, but it just, it's bigger. It, it's bigger. It's a, it's, a, it's a large community, and we get to help people give away their money and make an impact. Wells actually manages foundations and, and, uh, and trusts for people, does it not? Yes. Actually, um, within Wells Fargo Philanthropic, we manage over $20 billion, and we work with a whole group of individuals, corporations, irrevocable trust. We give away a tremendous amount of money into the community and really want to be good corporate citizens. And Alicia, let's go to you. How can donors in the community use the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta to assist them and help them learn or educate and then assist them in giving? How does someone start? Well, with the Community Foundation, often the starting vehicle is the creation of a donor-advised fund during their lifetime, because then it really gives them the opportunity to build that and to learn from that. And it's a very simple it's a very simple process to set up a donor-advised fund. And on our website at www.sorry. I'm going to give that to you, but what is a donor-advised fund? A donor-advised fund is a fund that a donor can put money into. It's segregated, has their name on it, their money stays in there, it grows in there. And from that, gifts can be made to nonprofit organizations. What's great about it is they can put the money in in one year, and they don't have to make gifts out of it for until many years in the subsequent. So it allows them the opportunity to be very thoughtful and planful about how they want to spend that money. Oftentimes, people start with a small amount of money, add money to it every year as they build their fund. Um, and then sometimes it's not until they retire that they really become that they really get engaged in their philanthropy. Some people set it up when they have some sort of a trigger event, when their business is sold or they have a highly appreciated security, and they want to put some money aside for charitable giving, and they and they want to spend some time really thinking about it and working through and learning about philanthropy, which they're each assigned a philanthropic advisor who can work with them on that whole process. And I don't want to leave get, this. They get an immediate charitable deduction. Exactly. And I don't want to leave this opportunity off because you said something that I think even small donors don't realize. A, an appreciated asset that they're going to have to pay a tax on, this would be a nice trigger event. Explain that. So if they have low-cost basis in a stock and they, it's highly appreciated, they're going to pay a ta- As you say, they're going to pay a tax. So it's much better to give it to charity 
And in that way, if they were going to be giving away money anyway, that is the asset they ought to be giving. It's just like with a, in plan giving, you want to give your IRA, you want to sign over your IRA to be a charitable gift if you're going to be leaving a gift in your, you know, by bequest, because so much of that will pay, be paid in taxes if you leave it to your kids. So and, there and are if certain, you leave it to a charity, there are no taxes. Exactly. Yeah. So there's certain kinds of gifts and certain times where it's so appropriate to begin and to grow your philanthropy. And, and that's how we set up our donor advice on is we um, we were selling a highly appreciated stock we we cashed half of it we took the other half and we put it into a fund and right. let's and let's use this I'm just going to segue this may be the first baby step that an accountant or mm-hmm. a financial advisor can say you know this is an area where it's an, it's, a, it's a it's a very small financial step for you but the good is so great this may be a first step exactly and as we talk about first steps we're going to be starting to end our show Tell us how people can take first steps with you. So, Phyllis, if somebody wants to talk to you about plan giving, how do they contact you? Okay. Well, the best way to contact me is via email, which is phyllis.silverstein at wellsfargo.com. And I'm always on my cell phone, 404-276-2035. And I'm happy to help anyone in the community truly make an impact with their funds. And Alicia, how can we contact you or the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta? The best way, I think, is to look at the Community Foundation's website, which is www.cfgreateratlanta.org, to see all the Community Foundation does. And Christy Eckoff is our Director of Gift Planning, C-E-C-K-O-F-F, at cfgreateratlanta.org, who would be happy to help anyone or any advisor think through this. And I want to remind you that you can always look at our website, www.gasolichfrankel.com, to learn of all of these contacts, because everything from Business Radio X on Wealth Matters is stored there. And so while we're wrapping up, let me thank everybody for listening to, I hope everybody, for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Thank you to Phyllis Silverstein and Alicia Phillip. The information you've given us is absolutely fantastic. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. And please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month, except this month where we're early. You can listen uh, by recording. And next month, well, I think we may do it again because Christmas falls the same week. But on the fourth Wednesday of every month at 830 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X.